Our dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we're here, that uh, our room is uh, occupied to the limit with those who want to hear your word, and that you have made available everything that had to be to, to put this day together, Father. And not the least of which is that you worked thousands of years ago with a young man named Daniel to produce a story that is unparalleled in its view of the future and of your power to control those events. Father, we want to continue to remember these these things as we study the things of your power, your sovereignty, your control over history, uh, so that as we perhaps get lost in the story of one man or a few men living through extraordinary moments in one life, that we don't forget, Father, that this is a story that's told to explain how our own lives are in your control as well, and that the things we each are facing right now in our own lives, things that have perhaps been unspoken even in this room, things, Father, that we secretly wish you would care for and take care of and remove or address in some fashion. Father, you are aware of these things you tell us, and your book today, Father, is example to us of how much control you have. And so our trust, Father, is not in what we want, but our trust is in what you give us. We pray for, uh, for that insight tonight as we study in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all remember last week we opened with looking at the six chapters that bridge Daniel 2 to Daniel 7. And we said those six chapters form a structure called a chiasm. You remember that from last week? I put the picture up for us in the chart. So if you were here last week, you probably have that in your memory. If you don't, uh, it's in the notes from last week and in the notes from this week. So that's something you can go look at later. But last week we said that the chiasm that's represented in chapters 2 through 7 is a structured way of organizing that content so as to explain its purpose. Daniel's opening chapters are organized in this way to help make sense of something that is seemingly contradictory. And that I mean, in some of the chapters, God is revealing his plan for this millennial-long Gentile domination over God's people, over Israel. And then in other chapters in this chiasm, God is reassuring those same people, the Jewish people, that these Gentile rulers remain under his sovereign control even as they are dominating his people. And that despite the overwhelming might of those nations, God remains at the helm, steering the rudder of history as always. And then furthermore, God is protecting the faithful within Israel. The remnant, as it's often referred to in the Old Testament, this concept that within the greater whole of Israel, there is a subset, a relatively small group of people who are the true believer. As we would say today, the saved within the larger community of Israel. And that remnant is part of the very group that got hauled off into Babylon in captivity, despite being a faithful member of God's people, being a faithful believer. Nevertheless, they're caught up in exactly the same circumstances that befell the rest of the nation. How do you explain that? The Lord explains it as saying, I am still with you. The nation is not going to be extinguished. The age of the Gentiles exists, yes, but it exists for good purpose. And God's going to show himself strong in the defense of his remnant, even as he prosecutes this age of Gentile oppression over Israel. As we go further into the book of Daniel, we'll come to better understanding not only of what God is doing, but the purposes behind even the age itself. That question is not one we want to address yet because it hasn't been addressed in the chapters we've studied, but it's coming. Meanwhile, chapter 3 of Daniel corresponds to point B in that chiasm. Again, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back to the notes. But in the chiasm of ABC, C prime, B prime, A prime, we are at B. That's the second chapter of the six. 
And this is the chapter in which the Lord is moving to defend the faithful remnant among those exiles who are in Babylon. And in particular, Daniel's three friends will be caught up in a political trap set by King Nebuchadnezzar's counselors and the king. So let's go there. Let's move into chapter 3 with King Nebuchadnezzar again, the king of Babylon. Chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come in to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before an image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So Nebuchadnezzar sets about creating his own massive statue, and it's logical to assume that there is a connection here between the statue that we studied last week in the dream of chapter 2 and this image that Nebuchadnezzar is standing up. Daniel, after all, has organized his book so that these two events are described in back-to-back chapters, so that detail alone would lead us to conclude that there must be some connection between the two. And we know this chapter follows the events of chapter 2 chronologically because, as you'll see later, Daniel's friends are already in their roles as these administrators over the province of Babylon, which is the award they received at the end of chapter 2. So clearly chapter 3 happens after chapter 2. And so now the question is, how close are these two events in time? Because it turns out that the answer to that question offers some insight into the motivation for what Nebuchadnezzar is doing in this case. Several possibilities exist for the guessing of time here, of when Nebuchadnezzar actually went about building this statue. I'm going to tell you the one I think is most likely, without wasting a lot of time on the alternatives. I think the most likely answer is about 585 B.C., and here's why. In that year, Nebuchadnezzar reached his limit of patience with the Jewish people. Remember, he first came into Jerusalem in 605 B.C. That's when Daniel and his friends were taken captive. And it's been 20 years, by 585 B.C., it's been 20 years since he first conquered the city and took those captives. And in the two decades that have happened since that point, he's been forced to contend with one insurrection after another from among those Jews who are still down in the city. He didn't take everybody in that first visit. He just took some. He had put his own king in place. And then he had been forced a few years later to return to the city a second time to deal with a rebellion and to take a king out of power who was trying to reassert authority and put another guy in place. Well, then by 585 B.C., there's yet another rebellion going on down in Judah. And he's had it. This is it. This is the final time he's going to deal with these people. So for the third and last time, he goes down to the city to lay waste to whatever remained of it. He destroys the walls, which renders the city indefensible after that. 
He raises the temple down to its foundation. He carries off all the rest of the Jews in slavery. And he leaves behind a city in ruin. That final victory over Israel, I think, may be the occasion that prompted him, Nebuchadnezzar, to build this image. He had received from Daniel the interpretation of the dream. So he knew that he had been granted power by Daniel's God to rule the earth. Now, think about it. He has successfully defeated the very nation of people that this God claimed for himself. Moreover, Nebuchadnezzar has completely obliterated Yahweh's personal temple on earth. So I think under those circumstances, you have to wonder if maybe Nebuchadnezzar began to think that he's actually defeated Yahweh. That he's defeated the God who assigned him all of this power according to that dream. It's as if the king has succeeded in his own mind at rewriting the history that was represented in that timeline of the statue. The image of it, the interpretation of it came from Yahweh. Yahweh says, you're first, but you're not the only one. He goes down to Jerusalem. He wipes out every evidence of Yahweh that he knows of. Therefore, he comes back presuming that there's just not going to be a second kingdom now. That Babylon is going to rule forever. After all, if he's capable of crushing the temple of the God who gave him the power in the first place, who's left to challenge him? So he orders the construction of this statue to commemorate the defeat of Israel and Yahweh and the ensuing inauguration of an endless Babylon empire. The description of the statue would seem to support that conclusion because let's look at the statue. First, it's said to be an image made entirely of gold. Now, you all remember, of course, that in the statue that he had in his dream, it began with a head of gold, which represented himself, as we know. And then, as we heard, it progressed to other metals. So each metal represented a new empire, which came into its power only because it defeated the previous empire. So Nebuchadnezzar knew, just on the basis of that interpretation, that the Lord intended to one day replace Babylon and one day replace him. And I doubt he liked that when he heard it. So by making the statue out of only gold, it's obvious what his message is, right? He now believes that his rule will never end. Gold, or that is Babylon, will reign forever. And as the final group of Jewish exiles were marching into Babylon following Nebuchadnezzar's final trip down to attack the city, they would have joined their countrymen in captivity in Babylon and they would have brought with them the accounts of Jerusalem's destruction, the walls being torn down, the temple being laid waste. Later, of course, in the Old Testament, you see the story of Nehemiah who hears of how the walls have been taken down and it's not being rebuilt even after the first wave of returnees under Zerubbabel head back down there. So this is a serious loss to the Jewish people. They would have been devastated to understand what was home at that point, that there was nothing to go back to in captivity. Where do you find hope? You find hope in the thought of release and return. Only now there's nowhere to go back. There's nothing to go back for, or so it would seem. Can you imagine how they would have taken the news? I wonder if some of them have begun to doubt the promises of their God. Many of them certainly decided that it had, and so they leave their nation behind, they leave the law behind, they leave the Lord behind, they become apostate Jews in Babylon. But then there were others. There were other Jews who remained true to Yahweh, they remained true to their covenant with him, and they remained true to the law. And at this time in history, during this time of exile, this is where the Jewish people began their practice of meeting in synagogues, out of necessity. Where else are you going to meet? There's no temple. So if they're going to conduct any kind of religious service, they had to come up with some new constructs for how to do that. One of them was the synagogue. They had little choice in exile, but they perpetuated it even after they returned from the exile. They also founded many of the religious traditions that we today associate with modern Judaism. In fact, you could argue that modern Judaism has its beginning in the exiles of Babylon. Nevertheless, 
The destruction of the city and of the temple must have tested the faith of every one of those Jews, even Jews, even among the remnant, even among the believers who were in exile. And so I think now you begin to see why God delivered Daniel's interpretation of the dream so early in that long period of exile. Daniel revealed the statue just barely three years into the captivity of Israel in Babylon. He's the Lord is preparing, I think, the remnant to understand that the coming events are purposeful according to a God who's in control, so don't lose encouragement through them. Don't look back on the city's destruction and the temple's destruction with fear. But friends, understanding God's plan is one thing. Living in the light of that revelation is quite another. The real test for the remnant is about to happen when Nebuchadnezzar demands that all the people worship this image. Now, we don't know what the statue looked like. But it probably was not a copy in any way of the dream statue that we studied in chapter 2. And for one thing, we know that because the dimensions here are very unlike normal human proportions. Its height is ten times its width. It's tall, it's slender. Since it's about 90 feet high, that's about an eight-story building, it's only nine feet wide. If that were to be a statue of a human being, that would be equivalent to a six-foot man with a seven-inch chest. I mean, if you wanted to make a man in those proportions, you could, but it wouldn't look human. It would look silly, right? It would look like a distortion of the human body. Therefore, I'm going to conclude that this object is shaped more like an obelisk, maybe something like what he would have seen in Egypt. The image, whatever it looked like, was set up on the plain of Dura, which the word Dura just means an area that's enclosed or walled. And we know it's not far from the capital city because it's in the province of Babylon. It's on a plain... And if you put all those pieces together, knowing the height of this thing, it makes sense that he's done what he's done because he's put this really, really tall object far from the city on a flat plain and probably in an area that's surrounded by mountains or some other kind of natural structure so that it's set apart, highlighted, and it's very visible even from a long distance. It would be something like putting the Washington Monument standing in Death Valley, surrounded by all the mountains that ring Death Valley so that you just see it from a long distance in the desert and it's very visible. So no matter where you are in the city, you can probably look up and see it depending on how high it is. In verse 5, the king assembles his entire government or at least all the representatives of his government to carry out his orders. When you look at all those various names there, they represent the military, the judicial, the economic, the governmental leaders from all levels in the nation. He informs them that from this point forward, this image is your center for worship. That everyone in the nation must now treat this object as their focal point for worship. And their trigger, he says, is to bow whenever music is played. And he lists this long list of musical instruments. If you're trying to imagine what they would all sound like played together, it, the answer is terrible. But that's not how this is meant to be understood. It's not like there's a big orchestra following people around playing at a drop of a hat. In that list are instruments that are both traditionally Babylonian instruments, as well as Persian instruments, as well as Greek instruments. So it's essentially a demand that peoples of no matter what culture or in what place, when there is a call to worship, and calls to worship are usually performed through some kind of musical instrument, a single instrument in most cases, whenever that event occurs, this is where you worship. That's the meaning of what he's demanding. No matter what instrument calls you to worship, no matter where you are, face this direction. That's the sense of what he's doing here. He wants all peoples, notice in verse 7, of all languages are required to obey this command. From all of those details, we come to understand that Nebuchadnezzar is not so much interested in establishing a new religious practice. I mean, that is what's happening, but that's not his primary concern. 
What he's actually doing is working to ensure political loyalty and submission to his absolute authority. Notice who he assembled. He assembled his government and said, this is something I want to see all of you doing as well. And you have to remember, we're still relatively early in the history of the Babylonian Empire after their defeat of Assyria. It's only been a couple of decades since the ascent of Nebuchadnezzar into this place of power. And so he's still working to consolidate that power and to expose any disloyalty that's in his government. And of course, this whole affair, is, goes without saying, is an exercise in pride and hubris. I mean, come on, this is a 90-foot tower of gold, right? Assuming the image was square, it's easy to do a little math. The object of this size would have required about 4,400 tons of gold. And 4,400 tons of gold, 24 karat gold, would be worth $204 trillion today. Almost enough to pay off our debt. No, it would be enough, but check back next year. (laughs) Roughly equal to the number of cat videos on the Internet. This is an absurd testimony of Nebuchadnezzar's. And that 10 to 1 ratio is also interesting because 10 is a number for testimony. And it is not only in the Jewish culture, but it's also in many other Eastern cultures. So it seems as though he's making a testimony of his superiority. As far as its purpose, exposing disloyalty, I think this tactic probably wasn't very effective in the polytheistic cultures of Babylon and Persia. I mean, these people are very comfortable worshipping images, and they're very comfortable with the idea of many different gods. So I don't think it's a huge sacrifice for any of them to shift their allegiance to this new thing over whatever their traditions were, if that's the difference between life and death with the king. You got it, king. I'll take that one over my god. It doesn't really matter to me all that much. And so I doubt Nebuchadnezzar's display of grandeur here really exposed much opposition within his government, which tells you, that the author of this plan is not Nebuchadnezzar. It's not a very good plan if you're trying to expose disloyalty within a Gentile population. But it's tailor-made for exposing dissent among Jews, isn't it? Who have a law that specifically prohibits worship of graven images. So now you see the Lord's handwriting on this. That yeah, it came out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth, but where did the idea come from? God has obviously orchestrated this moment specifically to test the hearts of his people, for it's not a test for anyone else. In the case of Daniel's friends, this test is about to become extremely severe. In verse 6, Nebuchadnezzar declares quite dramatically that anyone who fails to abide by the command is going to be thrown into the furnace fire. They've done excavations of the area around Babylon. You know, Babylon is still there. The ruins are there in Iraq. Uh, you may have seen pictures since our country's military moved into the area and was able to take pictures. They're on the Internet if you want to go look. One of the things they've discovered there in their excavations are massive ovens, massive kilns. These are furnaces used to bake bricks for all the building that they did in Babylon, the walls and the buildings. If you've ever seen pictures of the ruins, then you're looking at the products of those ovens in Babylon. Ancient documents from that time also tell us that disobedient slaves might be thrown into these ovens from time to time. So the king's idea here is not novel. It's sort of consistent with what they did. So the ovens that made those bricks are likely the very same ovens that we're talking about now in this story. Verse 8. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. 
So, Daniel tells us that the king's edict gave opportunity, Daniel puts it, gave reason in verse 8, for certain Chaldeans to bring charges against the Jews who served in the king's court. Now, we remember we said last week at the very end that when Daniel's sudden success at interpreting the dream pleased the king, then he found himself elevated above all other Chaldeans, all other wise men and counselors, well beyond his years. He's a young guy. Now he's running the show among a lot of guys who've been there for a long time. We said last week that's a perfect situation to develop political enemies because of jealousy, obviously. And they probably would have feared that someone with Daniel's insight might one day, sooner or later, expose them as frauds, or at the very least as incompetence. I mean, they couldn't even do what he did. So they're probably a little fearful for their position. That is to say, even if it's not jealousy, they had good reason to want to move him and his friends out of the way. And rather than attack him initially, they go after his three friends who Daniel had promoted alongside him. And normally, if you think about this from just a political point of view, you would think somebody in this situation like these these jealous Chaldeans, they might have just waited and watched until their adversary slipped up, until he did something to incriminate himself or he did something disloyal to the king, something that gives rise to a good accusation, and then, bam, you go to the king, you tell on him, and there you go, he's out of the way. But there's a problem in this case. The problem in this case is Daniel and his friends are righteous in their behavior and they're upstanding and incorruptible in their character. So you're going to wait a long time to find something wrong with these guys. It appears as though they've not found what they needed to accomplish what they've been wanting to do for the better part now of 17 years, if if my timing is accurate. They needed a break. They needed something to give them the opportunity they've been waiting for. And Daniel says in verse 8, for this reason, which is to say they finally get their opportunity through God. God gave Daniel's enemies the break they needed in order for the rest of the story to follow, for the opportunity to persecute Daniel's friends to take place. The king's edict exposes the Jews' commitment to Yahweh above their commitment to his orders. And that's, by the way, it's always been the expectation for God's people, whether Jewish or in the church today. Our allegiance to God is never to be second place to our allegiance to anything in the world. That goes without saying. For the Jewish people, the law demanded that they have no gods before God. Not only would they not worship false images, but they would not even put the commands of men above the precepts of God. That was an expectation for living according to the law. The New Testament believer is really no different. We're under very similar expectations. As Jesus said, Mark 12, 17, and Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. So Jesus says the government deserves our honor and our obedience. But then he adds, by that same token, then you also have to be prepared to render to God what God has reserved for himself. God has reserved certain things for himself, like, for example, our worship and our obedience, even above our allegiance to government. As Paul teaches in Romans 13:7, render to all what is due, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor. Paul says we give all to each what is due. So certain things are due government. Taxes are obviously at the top of the list for the government anyway. Due for government what government has coming is a way to say it. And he says, similarly, we render honor, we give our allegiance to the customs of our society, to observe them as expected, not to run against the grain, just to be a malcontent. It's good and healthy to be going with the flow, as long as it doesn't conflict with our Christian witness. But then Paul adds, render fear to whom fear is due. And friends, fear of the Lord has to trump fear of men. In other words, when your obedience to God comes into conflict 
with your obedience to human rulers, you're going to face a fearful choice. One way or the other, you're going to have to make someone upset, which is cause for fear for whatever those consequences might be, right? So Paul is saying, either you will choose to obey the Lord, and in so doing disobey government, when there's a conflict, I'm saying, or... You will choose to obey the government and you will disobey the Lord. If you choose to obey the Lord and disobey the government, then you'll have reason to fear the government's response for your disobedience. But you accept that. Because, friends, if you do what the government wants over what the Lord wants, then you have reason to fear what the Lord may do in response to your disobedience. And Paul says when you face that choice, you have to render fear to who deserves our fear and who deserves our fear. Jesus says in Luke 12:4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, there's no more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So according to Jesus, the one who is owed your fear, do your fear, as Paul would say, is the Lord. So an earthly ruler who is upset at you for disobeying an earthly rule can only take his revenge or her revenge so far. And that is literally only as far as the grave, which for us seems like that's all there is. But then if that's your perspective, that's exactly why you need to hear these words, right? Because that's not all there is. That's the least there is because you're going to die sooner or later anyway. But the Lord can take revenge much farther than just your physical death. So fear him more is the conclusion. If you make your priority preserving earthly peace, then you risk eternal reward. Jesus says, Matthew 10, 37, he says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. That's the dilemma faced by Daniel's friends here, right? The Chaldeans notice that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have declined to bow and worship the images required. At some point, it was inevitable, right? At some point when the, when the flute or the psaltery, whatever they're playing, comes to life, these guys aren't doing what everyone else is doing. The three men apparently don't attempt to hide their disobedience either. For example, you might imagine they might have bowed on cue with whatever music was played, but in their hearts, while everyone else was praying to the obelisk, they were just praying to Yahweh. They wouldn't have been praying to the obelisk. They're not worshiping the obelisk, but they would just have appeared to be in compliance with the order. I've heard stories of missionaries praying to Jesus when the local mosque calls for Muslims to pray. They're doing it to avoid becoming too noticeable as a Christian when they're trying to remain under the radar in that culture. And so if they're trying to fit in, they'll play the rules as as everyone else plays them. But in their heart, they're praying to Jesus. The actions of Daniel's friends strongly suggest that there is something wrong with any compromise that conceals our true worship so as to avoid drawing attention to our disobedience. The circumstances of Daniel 3, I think, suggest that the Lord expects our public worship behavior to comport with our private understanding of who he is. When the world demands we bow to a false god, we do not, I would argue, have license to comply outwardly while secretly disagreeing in our hearts because our behavior is our testimony behaving in any way contrary to your belief is sin James says so you cannot sort of fudge it by saying well you think I'm doing what you want but in my heart I'm really doing what I want you know who thinks like that four-year-olds who say to their parents well you might make me clean my room but I really don't want to that logic that gets us in trouble because if you've taken that step I think you're one step away from simply deciding that Yahweh and Allah are the same God 
There's people who confuse those words as if they're not meaningful in their distinction. They are meaningful. If God wanted to call himself Allah, he would have put it in the Bible. It's not just human language we're talking about. We're talking about identity. And there's a meaningful identity assigned to names. I mean, God himself says his name is the name above all names. Names matter to God. Attitudes matter to God. Behaviors matter to God. And these three men could have easily found a way to hide what they thought in their heart and played along with the culture and avoided this moment. And self-evidently, they didn't choose to do that. Finally, I would add that had they done it in any form, it would violate the spirit of the second commandment, which forbids graven images. A graven image is not just an image to a false god, friends. A graven image also refers to images that stand for the true God. So you cannot bow to any image in worship, even one that is purportedly a picture or a representation of Christ. Even if we tell ourselves, well, we're secretly just worshiping in the way God wants in our hearts, we are violating the commandment. Consequently, we would not expect our worship would be received from God under those circumstances. So we have to be prepared to accept the consequences of disobeying men so that we can please God. Because, friends, it may be the case that God wants you in that challenge like he wanted these three. That's what Daniel's friends did, and I think as a result, their enemies used their faithfulness to God as cause to cast accusations against them, as you can see in the story. In verse 12, they run to the king, and they say, these three, they're not doing what they were told to do. It's like tattletaling, right? They conveniently remind the king, oh, and by the way, you said if we have this problem, they're all supposed to go into the furnace. Their conspirators seem to have found the perfect solution to the problem, but it's one God himself has constructed for a greater purpose. You might wonder at this point why Daniel isn't caught up in the accusations. I don't know about you, but I did. You know, where's Daniel in this story? No one knows for sure. Perhaps his conspirators were too afraid to bring Daniel in at this point because of the power Daniel apparently had. Or, or maybe Daniel's just not around. They haven't observed him yet. They don't have an accusation to make it for him yet. But I think for whatever reason, the fact that Daniel's not caught up in chapter 3 is why Daniel receives his own moment of testing later in this chiasm. Finally, there's an interesting picture emerging here. Now, not one that we're going to fully develop today. It's going to take some time as we go through the rest of Daniel. But you'll see it. We know from chapter 2 last week that Nebuchadnezzar is the first ruler in that age of Gentile statue, right? He's the head of gold. And in his day, he's the single most powerful man on earth. No one challenged his rule, remember? All nations, all peoples, even the animals, we were told in Jeremiah, are given into his authority everywhere on the physical earth. Even though he didn't go everywhere, it was true for everywhere. At the opposite end of that statue, at the other end of the timeline, when the age of the Gentiles is ending, where you have the the ten toes, as we remember, that's when we hear the stone comes, the stone that represents Christ, the second coming of the Lord, and that's when the new kingdom of Christ begins at the end of this age. We're told elsewhere in Scripture, he will come in the midst of one man ruling the entire earth, having power over all peoples, all nations in that last day of the age of the Gentiles. As I said, we're going to develop this picture more as we go further through the book. But we can already see that as the age of the Gentiles will come to an end, it comes to an end under circumstances that are very similar to the way that it's now beginning under Nebuchadnezzar. It starts with one Gentile man ruling the entire world. It's going to end with one Gentile man ruling the entire world. It starts with a king requiring all his subjects to worship an image that's been erected in his honor, and it's going to end with a king requiring the whole world to worship an image in the temple in the last days before Christ's second coming. This picture of a man that will come at the end of the age is one that will develop even further as you move along in the book. 
Moving on, when the king learns of the boy's rebellion, he becomes enraged and he reacts in a predictable way. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Predictably, the king is angered when he hears about these three guys, so he says, bring them to me now. I'm sure they're ushered in very unceremoniously, probably roughed up a little bit. You know, this is not like a a tea party. They're being dragged, basically, I would assume, before the king. And the king just puts the question to him. He says, is what I'm hearing about you guys true? But it's clear that that's a rhetorical question because he doesn't even ask them for an answer. He doesn't wait for it. He decides, I assume, that there's no reason for a discussion at this point because it's just easy enough to settle the matter one way or the other by just having him do it right now. Just puts the demand out there once more. He says, okay, are you going to bow down or not? And if they will not, he repeats the threat of the fire. I think stories like this tend to lose some of their impact for experienced Bible students because we know how the story's going to end, right? So we're already thinking about how they win in the end, and it just robs a little bit of the drama out of the scene for us because you see their courage as just logical given what we know God is prepared to do for them, right? Like Superman. They know they're invincible, so they can just spout off whatever comes off their head. But friends, these guys didn't know the end of the story. I mean, I'm not saying they didn't have faith that God could do something, but they don't know what's coming. And I want you to put yourselves, if you can, back in their shoes for just this moment. They're hustled into the room without warning. They haven't had any chance to prepare their hearts, to to, to pray. One minute, you're laying on the couch watching Dr. Oz. Next minute... King wants to see you now. Get up. Hey, we're taking you in there. Well, what's up? What did I do? I don't know what's going on. And then they find themselves standing before literally the most powerful man on the earth who's visibly upset at them. You ever been called before the boss and the boss is clearly not happy? You start imagining the worst things because you don't even know what's about to happen, right? And he's probably shouting, I'm assuming. I doubt he's talking in mild tones. And they're being threatened with a painful death. And he says immediately, which in this moment, life or death's about to be decided. It's either bow now or let's head to the furnace. No appeals. So understanding the situation they faced with all of that drama, it makes their response all the more admirable, doesn't it? Because they don't even, they don't even hesitate. First, they say, you don't even need an answer from us. What they mean is, you already know what we're going to say. Just as his question was rhetorical, their answer is obvious. We're Jews. You know we're not going to worship this image. Furthermore, they declare their God, Yahweh, is more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar, so he can deliver them from the furnace if he chooses. And then they add that even if he does not choose to deliver them from these circumstances, it doesn't matter. He says, we're still not going to turn our back on the Lord. No matter what that outcome means, whether it's death or life, that doesn't change anything for us. Many a Bible commentator have remarked on the noble response of these young men. They've taken... The command of Scripture to love your Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And they've made obedience to that the aim of their life, obviously. 
For them, it appears God's glory before the nations was more important than their own security, even their own lives. And I think the most amazing thing about that aspect of this is the speed at which they're willing to bring that response to this king and really with such self-confidence. There doesn't seem to be any equivocation on their part. But even more amazing than that to me is their, their unwavering trust in God's sovereignty. You know, it's one thing to stand firm against a king by saying, oh, God can save me. But it's another thing altogether to stand firm knowing God may decide not to save you. I think too often we conflate God's potential to act with God's willingness to act. God's capable of all things, yes. But he self-evidently only does certain things. So you can't assume naturally that every time you want something, it's what God wants. That's self-evidently not the way life is. Therefore, our resolve to remain obedient in times of testing cannot be based on the expectation that God is somehow obligated to respond to our faithfulness according to our desires, like a quid pro quo relationship. That's just superficial obedience at best. It's equivalent to a child who only does his chores because he gets an allowance. That's not obedience. That's called employment. Right? So the true test of whether someone's heart is obedient is whether that person serves the Lord even if the Lord's will is to see them suffer for that obedience. Remember, God's own son was not spared from suffering despite living a life of perfect obedience. Far more obedience than you and I show. And he got a far worse result than we'll all probably know. And that's why Jesus said no slave is above his master. You cannot live a life without room for the possibility that your obedience will result in something that is unpleasant. When you live that way, when you live with that understanding, first, you please the Lord because your motivation to please him will not go to and fro with your circumstances. You will not be a man tossed by the waves, as James describes. You'll be someone who is resolute, based on a confidence that is eternal, and that's a confidence that's not shaken by someone who comes along and says, I'll shoot you if you don't renounce Christ. Okay, shoot me, fine, I'm going to die anyway. What difference does it make how I die? I just want to make sure when I stand before Christ, I don't have a testimony of having done the wrong thing while I was here. That's what it matters. And then secondly, you won't be as easily disappointed or discouraged when your obedience isn't met with prosperity and happiness and, and Hollywood endings. A lot of people, I think, end up making the wrong decisions in their life because they see how that decision will lead to temporary happiness, but they don't see how that sin will rob them of something eternal. God can do all things, but he only does what is good and right and best when measured from eternity. Now, in the case of these men, the right thing was to allow the king to carry through on his threats and then to allow God to manifest himself in the result however he chooses, to make glory out of their death or if he chooses Out of a rescue. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes and were cast in the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. So the king's rage transfers to the temperature of the fire. He orders the furnace turned up seven times hotter. Now the number seven, as you know, 
represents completion. So I don't think Daniel's saying the furnace was necessarily exactly 700% hotter. Uh, I think he's saying that the king ordered the furnace turned up to its maximum temperature, to 11. The furnace itself was probably just uh, what we've seen in these excavations, which is an adobe structure. They stand stories tall in some cases. They're lined with natural stones that could weather the extreme heat. The top of the structure was open to exhaust the fumes, like a chimney. Moving down the structure, you would find various openings in the side into which the clay bricks would have been inserted to cure in the heat of the furnace. At the very bottom, you had very large openings from which workers could shovel in the wood and remove the ash and where air intake could come in to feed the fire. The three men are probably being led to one of the openings near the top of this taller structure, top of the oven, so they can be thrown through the openings that are used to cure the bricks and they would fall down the length of it into the fire that's burning at the very bottom. They would have ascended to this place on a structure of ramps or stairs that were constructed along the side for the workers to use. You can imagine the three guys tied up with all their clothes on are probably in the front. You've got these guards who are leading them up from behind to make them walk the steps to the top of the structure. Finally, they get to the top, and we're told they push these guys into the furnace through one of those openings. Notice that the three men fell into the furnace fully clothed and tied up. Those details become important here in a minute as we get to the end of the chapter. After depositing Daniel's friends in the furnace, then the guards would have had to climb back down that structure, right? And on their way back down... Fire, I guess, from inside the oven just belches outward through one of those openings that are midway down the structure where you can put in the the bricks and it consumes them as they're walking down the stairs. Ironically, the king's rage blinded the king into doing something rather foolish here, given his goals, because if he truly wanted to inflict maximum punishment upon these three men, he would have ordered the fire turned down, not up. Setting the oven to a low temperature would have prolonged their agony. By increasing the temperature, he just made their death that much quicker and relatively painless. Plus, of course, it resulted in his own men getting burned up. That hasty decision let God have a signature moment because what he did is he revealed that he was working to fulfill his promise to Abraham because he told Abraham those who curse Israel will be cursed. And I'm not saying in every moment that someone acts against a Jew you see a reciprocal act by God. What I'm saying is from the Jewish point of view, this element in the story would have been an important detail. It's significant It signified that even when an all-powerful world ruler has taken Israel captive and destroyed the temple and he's about to burn up three innocent men, God is still on the throne fulfilling his covenants to Israel, keeping his promises. And that's the central message of this chapter and the corresponding chapter, B prime, in our chiasm. That the lives of those three men are finding their purpose now in this event. That is, God has orchestrated these series of events to put them in jeopardy, to let them fall into this furnace, so that as God responds, he's showing himself to Israel as still at work, faithfully preserving Israel. You know, if you don't have three guys in the fire, you can't have a rescue. There's got to be the bad before the good shows up, or you don't have an appreciation of the good. In a sense, you could say, the Lord put these three men in this situation so that their testimony could give meaning to Israel's defeat under Nebuchadnezzar. Let's look at what happens next. Verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and stood up in haste. And he said to the high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, 
Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. At the very lowest level, at the base level of the furnace, that's where you had these large openings tall enough for people to walk in if the fires weren't raging. And that's where they allowed them to to refuel and stoke the fires, etc. And those openings were also large enough that if someone were sitting on ground level some distance away, they could look into the furnace and see the fire burning in the base of that kiln. And apparently that's what the king's done. He stationed himself at a point where he can peer into the fire and get the full satisfaction of his revenge when these guys bodies falling from above fall in the fire and immediately burst into flame he assumes instead it says he stands up in astonishment as he takes note of these men moving around standing and moving around freely in the furnace seemingly unharmed not just three now but four as he said and he notes he says they're loosed or they're unbound so that means the ropes are no longer in place perhaps they've been burned away so the men are free then he says, did you guys throw an extra guy in? I didn't read it today. No, no, we only threw three. He says, well, this fourth one doesn't even really look like the rest. He looks like he calls him here a son of God's. His words would mean a human who appears to have divine power. Remember, these guys worship pagan gods that are often portrayed as animals or people. And the pantheon of gods was a mythic set of creatures. So for him, just another son of the gods doesn't necessarily mean he had any special significance. It was just a divine creature. We know, though, that his words were more correct than he could have understood. They're just about 600 years early. The fourth person here is the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is always the person of Christ prior to his incarnation as Jesus born in Nazareth. So before Jesus took on flesh, he existed. He was in the beginning with God. He was God, as John says in his prologue. So Christ was still at work in his creation even before he came as a baby. It's not like he was doing nothing and then he just showed up in Bethlehem in 4 BC. In fact, Paul says in Colossians 1, and the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 1, that all visible manifestations of God, all of them, are always the second person of the Godhead. That the Father and the Holy Spirit, being both all spirit, are invisible. The only way anyone ever perceives God physically in any form, in any manifestation, it's always Jesus in that manifestation. So when Christ makes an appearance in the Old Testament, before he took on flesh, the Bible, the Old Testament, refers to him as the angel of the Lord. And one of the ways we know that this is not just an angel, but is actually deity in other places of the scripture, is when you see the reaction of people who encounter the angel of the Lord, they are bowing to him, they're calling him Lord, they're worshiping him, and you never see the angel of the Lord contradicting them. Whereas in other cases, when angels get worshipped mistakenly, they're very quick to always say, don't do that, get up. Last angel who received worship, it did not go well for that angel. So please don't make that mistake again for my sake. So the fact that this angel of the Lord does receive worship is confirmation we're looking at a member of the Godhead. And that member, of course, is Christ. Now that Christ has come in flesh, you won't see the angel of the Lord showing up anymore in scripture post his incarnation. All right, so although the name angel of the Lord is not given in this case specifically, we know both by the miraculous nature of what's going on and by the king's own comments that this must be the angel of the Lord. He appears, he says, as a son of the gods. That is like the son of God. And he's come into the fire, clearly, to save these men. Notice what he's done, though. I mean, the miracle is is self-evident, but consider all of its ramifications. He doesn't just save them from the heat. He saves them from toxic fumes. 
He saves them from asphyxiation. Normally there's not a lot of oxygen inside a fire. They're even saved from the fall. I mean, they're tossed over this tall height. They're fine. They're walking around. I mean, when the Lord saves, He truly saves, right? There's, there's not some limit to what He's trying to get done here. It's clear that nothing's going to stop what His plan is. And even more amazing to me in some ways is they remain in the fire. They're hanging out. You know, it's one thing for Him to say, out there, come on, get out of here, quick. You know, I don't know what they're doing, but they're not in a rush. Presumably they could have run out immediately, but they don't. It seems that the Lord wanted to make a point to the king. You notice it's the king who calls them out. That is, He wants the king to be convinced. That the king himself knows who they are. It's not a dream. It's not an apparition. They didn't suddenly fall off the side of the stairs and miss the entrance to the furnace. And I mean, there's not some weird explanation. It's what it really appears to be. And so they're left there just long enough. And of course it works. The king calls them out by name. And then they emerge, stunning everyone who's watching. And there's quite a crowd there, as you notice, all assembled to see this moment. Now you think maybe this is just out of interest, like people who slow down to see a car wreck. I don't think so. And particularly because of who's there. I think the king assembled all these guys in his government because he wants to make a point about people who challenge his power. Remember, this whole thing was set up originally to be a test of loyalty for him about who was going to fall in line. As the three walk out unharmed, even their clothes are untouched. And there's not even an odor from the furnace in their clothes. Here's where the clothing, I think, becomes an important element in the story. Normally, you might expect condemned men to lose their clothing prior to an execution. That was certainly the usual practice in that day. You still see that practice going on even in Jesus' day when you hear that he was stripped of his clothing in preparation to get on the cross, right? So, by the way, the movies always show him with a little bit of clothing. That's so they can keep their PG rating. He would have been naked on the cross, okay? That's how they did it. The whole point was to shame them. There's no reason to give them any modesty. You're hanging up there naked. That's what you're doing. That's why Paul says he despised the shame of the cross as he went to the cross in our place. But these guys are allowed to keep not just a small amount of their clothing, they're wearing everything they own. And presumably because the anger of the king was such that it just propelled the moment too quickly for them to do anything differently, right? The haste of the moment left them all clothed. But even in that you see God. God preserved them such that they had clothes on going in and they had clothes on coming out. He ensured they emerged from the furnace both with their lives and their dignity intact. The king had attempted to kill them and to do so in such a way that would make an example of them. But in the process, God has turned the whole thing on its head and he's making the example. He's setting the example. He's consumed his adversaries. He's vindicated his faithful. He's restored their dignity while vacating the king's orders. And the king, in his response, shows that he gets the lesson. Look what he says. He says, these three are servants of the Most High God. He declares this not only here, but seven times altogether in the book of Daniel. And that statement is acknowledging a higher power than himself. He's pretty quick to move in and out of that mindset, isn't he? He comes back and forth. To the Jew in captivity, when they hear of this account, this would have been a source of real encouragement for them because the dream in chapter 2 foretold that they would suffer under Gentile oppression, Gentile kings. But the events of chapter 3 now are reminding them that God's people are still under God's authority such that even those kings cannot usurp God's sovereign control of circumstances. Israel can't defeat the Gentiles, not in their own power, because the Lord's appointed that the Gentiles will win, at least for a time. But by the same token, neither can the Gentiles defeat God's faithful, for the Lord continues to honor His word and His covenants. So in fact... Their judgment, Israel's judgment under the age of Gentiles, is itself a result of God's promise to them in the covenants of what would come from disobedience. So there's no plan B here. Everything's plan A. Everything's going just as it's expected to go. 
The scene, I think, is also a source of encouragement for everyone who knows Christ in faith. Because those three guys that walked up those stairs bound, ready to enter into a furnace of fire for their death, they can represent all believers. They carry the burdens of sin with them. That is, they carry everything from this life. The clothing, you might argue, is a burden of, of being clothed with the unrighteousness that we all know in life. They're bound, that is, by sin. Paul says we are slaves to sin in our life before Christ. They're guilty, declared so by a court, sentenced to death in an eternal fire that is the hottest known place. But as they fall in faith into Christ, he saves them from the end result of that destination. He himself enters the furnace, so to speak, so as to save us from the judgment that we deserve. He cuts our bonds, he frees us, and leaves us unharmed. So lastly, after these men emerge, the king responds, verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, insomuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's a really interesting study for us, for me. We're going to get more into his head later, but he's a guy that's hard to figure out. At one moment, he's full of pride and bravado and knows he's in charge and wants everyone to believe it too. And then the next moment, he's ready to acknowledge the God of Israel. And he seems to be swinging in that direction in this moment. Not that he's a man of faith in Yahweh, I'm not going that far yet, but merely the fact that he's willing to acknowledge there is such a God and he has power is a lot all in its own. He declares, these men are blessed. They place their trust in the right place, which is tantamount to saying, you didn't trust me. And he acknowledges, you defied my orders. And congratulates them for having that courage. It's so interesting to me that he doesn't try to gloss over the fact that they disobeyed his orders, you know. Their survival has made such an impression on the king that he drops any pretense of saving face or honor in the face of this triumph that has overcome him, right? He just acknowledges this outcome is God-ordained and he just yields to it. It's a very interesting character. And he declares, these men deserve praise for standing up for what they believe. Then he reverses his edict, the prior edict. If he hadn't reversed that edict... The next time they don't bow down, we do this whole thing over again. That was the potential anyway. But in this case, he changes the, the rule for them. Now, remember, he's an unchallenged sovereign in Babylon. That's what made him gold. And all the others were lesser value in the statue. None of the other governments had this kind of sweeping power vested in a single individual. Even the one that comes after him, the Medo-Persian Empire, which we'll learn a little more about later in this book, they couldn't do what he's doing right now. In their law, once something was said by a king, it couldn't be reversed by anyone, not even that king or any later king. But in this case, it could be. And his new decree is that no one may speak a word against the God of Israel. That is to say, they're free to continue in their worship and no one can stop them. But it goes deeper than that. He removes any threat against them arising out of this worship to the point where even future generations of Jews existing in Babylon and later them in Medo-Persia, for that matter, they can live without fear, for this establishes a precedent for quite some time. Here again, a strong encouragement for the Jew who was in exile. The Lord may have put them there, and their circumstances aren't great, but he expects them to continue in faithful obedience to the commands of the covenant, even while they're in exile, and he has certainly opened a door for them to do it without any formal resistance from the government. Now the question is, will they do it? The ending of this story serves as another picture of the 
age of the Gentiles and how it proceeds. In a future day, in the last days of this age, the toes again, Israel is going to find itself subjected as a nation to a fiery trial from a single world ruler again. In that trial, the nation is going to seem, at least in the moment, to have faced its end. As these three boys seem to be facing their end, Israel will come to a moment near the end of this age where they will think their end is coming. They will believe they are about to be extinguished. And under those circumstances, they're going to face the temptation to repudiate the Lord and to do something called taking the mark. If they do so, they will be lost. So for them, it may appear as though there's only one way to survive. But in that last moment, the Lord is going to appear at the very last day. He's going to save Israel from the trial. He's going to preserve them against the enemy. And at the end of it, those who have waited for that moment will be left unharmed. And their enemies will have no choice but to acknowledge the Lord's superiority. That is, as Paul says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Father, I do ask you again for uh, insight into these things as we continue in our study, Father, to... uh, to continue walking us through it patiently, showing it to us in a new way. And then, Father, as always, we look for how what we're learning is to be put to use in our life. We're not in furnaces, we pray. We're certainly not in captivity, at least not yet. But, Father, our world is still very creative, the enemy himself being crafty. And there's always some new way to put us in a moment of trial or testing, some, some way in which our patience, our confidence, our eternal outlook might be... Uh, we might be tempted to throw that away for something temporal and for something short-term. Father, we know you may test us with those things from time to time, but we also ask that you would give us insight and courage to pass those tests, that we may please you with what we do in our lives. That's our goal, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name.